This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast Best Bits from Monday, February the 6th. We spoke to Anne Hyatt on the show and a leadership consultant. She's also the former right hand to Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame, Eric Schmidt of Google fame. So therefore, something of a Silicon Valley insider. Uh, and joined us here in studio from her um, appearances down at the uh, Lit Fest over the course of the weekend. Uh, she was here to talk about her book, but also an opportunity for us to talk to her about the current tech firings uh, and not so much hirings in Silicon Valley and get her thoughts on that. Thomas Floor also joined us live in studio, founder, chairman, Vista Global Holdings. Houday, uh, Vista Jet. A private jet company uh, who've just released their 2022 numbers. Uh, Thomas was in town and he was kind enough to join us live in the studio to talk numbers, but also to talk about the growth of the private jet industry. Dr. Zenith Reza Khan from the University of Wollongong Dubai College also joined us live in studio uh, to discuss cheating, cheating in exams more specifically. Uh, why? Because it's a conversation that uh, has arisen in light of the chat GPT application. It's got a lot of people talking as to whether that is going to have an impact uh, on exams, on learning. Uh, so we asked Dr. Zenath exactly that. And meanwhile, uh, Richard, myself and Brandy were talking all things US employment figures. They were out over the weekend. Uh, they were better than expected. That's had an impact on the markets themselves. Uh, but also asking, uh, maybe giving a bit too much away about whether any of us had cheated in a test or an exam in the past. That's all here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast. A big jobs report out overnight, Richard Dean. This one coming from the United States. Yeah, first Friday of the month is always jobs month. And we kind of expected a kind of... I don't know, I wasn't very excited about it. No? No, Brandy, I don't know if you were as well, but I just thought this jobs report was going to be, yeah, whatever, US created a few more jobs, fine. Blah, 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 same old, same old. And then the numbers came out, and it was like, what just happened? And you've got whopping, was the, was the word that, that CNN used in their headline, monster was the word Reuters used, and blockbuster was used by Bloomberg. What happened? Yeah, massive surprise to the upside. More than half a million jobs. People were expecting 188,000. By people, I mean the analysts and economists who predict these things. And it's worrying for a couple of reasons. We've had Maurice Gravier in this morning. He's the chief investment officer of Emirates MBD, and he's predicting sort of a whole new era of volatility uh, this year for investors. And one of those things, um, and he said, you know, it's macro volatility. It's it's big shocks and surprises. Um are basically economies not doing what you would expect them to do. And what you would expect an economy to do um, when you had constant interest rate rises at the rate that we've seen them in, in the US is slow down. Um, but the worry about this, this jobs report is that things seem to be doing exactly the opposite. We've got unemployment um, at the lowest level it's been since 1969. It's at 3.4%. Uh, wage growth is the other thing that people are watching, hoping, um, and it sounds horrible to say, hoping that wage growth will slow down. <laughs> Down. Because as an individual, obviously, um, you are expecting it to do completely the opposite. You're hoping it will do completely the opposite, right? You'd think more jobs. Great. More competition for labour. Brilliant. I'm in demand. Um, I might get 
better bonus this year. I might get a better salary. But for the economy as a whole, this is the thing that, that people worry about. So that soft landing that last week everyone was feeling quite bullish about, markets were feeling quite bullish about, the idea that the Fed might actually manage to sort of engineer both the interest rate rises and protect the economy, but slow it down at a, a reasonable rate might not be happening because there are some suggestions that the economy is taking no notice. We've been speaking to them somebody today, and we're not. We have indeed. They are they are featuring prominently today. So Maurice Gravier is the chief investment officer. Fine, he has one perspective. Dan Richards is a regular on the show. He's with the economics department. He's a senior economist, and we asked him quite simply, how significant is this jobs report, and what does it mean for rates going forward? So in data we had out on Friday, we saw that US non-farm payroll surprised massively to the upside in January with a net gain of 517,000 compared to a consensus prediction of 188,000. So that's more like kind of post-pandemic gains in job numbers. Meanwhile, December's print was also revised upward from 223,000 to 260,000. So again, also pretty strong. Now, while this strong jobs report could be a sign that Federal Reserve has managed to successfully orchestrate a soft landing, there are also concerns that it is in fact still not quite done enough to cool the economy sufficiently to quash inflation. And that's really the Fed's key focus at the moment. So this all raises some questions about what the Fed will do going forward and what, what will this job support mean for, for rates? Will they actually head higher than 5%? Which, of course, would in all likelihood mean more rate hikes here in the UAE as well. Firstly, we have to see what the inflation print tells us when that comes out later this month. And secondly, the headline number was greeted by some scepticism given the magnitude of the upside surprise for those jobs numbers, with speculation of figures in fact thrown off by annual benchmarking and an update of seasonal factors and population controls and could well be revised yet. And whilst we had Dan, we thought we'd ask him what's coming up, asking him what's the big story moving the markets this week, Mr Richards? It's actually looking pretty quiet in terms of the major data releases and central bank meetings, especially when you compare it to everything that was going on last week. So in part, we'll actually be digesting that still and really looking out for the comments from Fed members with pre-FOMC blackout period now over. We'll be looking out for what they have to say about rates and also that astonishing energy. FP report from Friday. And then locally, we also have Dubai's PMI figures coming up on Thursday, which follow on from the uh, headline UAE reading we had last week. Now, these have remained pretty strong compared to what we've seen in the rest of the world really so far. All we're saying, we do expect the non-oil sector to slow this year, and that will likely be reflected in the PMI survey. Yeah, those are the thoughts then of Daniel Richards, the senior economist at Emirates NBD. Thanks very much indeed to you all for your uh, text messages this morning. A good reaction to our chat with Anne Hyatt a little earlier on uh, today, but uh, kind of Anne to join us live in studio. Uh, great insight into life in Silicon Valley. Abdul Salam rather cheekily asking, is there such a thing as a good layoff these days or not? Yeah, I mean, not a million miles away from the jobs numbers on Friday is the reason that we had Anne in the studio. Uh, she used to be the chief of staff at Google, which is uh, laying off 12,000 people. She mm. was Jeff Bezos's right-hand woman. In fact, she nearly killed him by renting him the wrong helicopter. And... We wanted to know from from her what these layoffs meant for the culture of, of Silicon Valley, um, what the rapid skilling up 
hiring of people during COVID, but then letting them go when the economic tides turned. Um, what that said about sort of the, the way Silicon Valley treats people, mm. basically, as, as well. So she was great on that, as Tom said. And thanks also to Ravi uh, for getting in touch this morning. Ravi, uh, being bold enough uh, and brave enough um, to tell us about his examination techniques a little uh, earlier on in his life. I uh, hope you got your e- economics results that you were after there, Ravi. Thanks for that one. Uh, that's off the back of the uh, conversation we've just been having with Dr Zenath Reza Khan. Uh, Richard Dean almost taken aback a little bit by, there, by the, uh, the amount of cheating that actually goes on these days still. 70 to 80% of students cheat at some stage. That's quite a lot. Go on, come on. I was going to no. say, is this... Come okay? On. I, I honestly, I, my first degree was a lower second class degree, a Desmond in history from Hull. Mm-hmm. If I cheated, I'd have got a better degree. <laughs> well, statistically, there's three of us in this studio. So if the 70 to 80 percent is right, two of us have done it. I definitely did at school. How? Huh? With all the old tricks of the trade, you know, codes on arms, bits <laughs> of paper here, there and everywhere. Um yeah, I, I had a fake broken arm, so use the cask and things oh, like that. I, I did, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's your two out of so three. So there you are. No, I did. I, yeah, I, I, I faked a heart problem to get out of my exams. What? Yeah. So that's kind of cheating, isn't it? So that, did you, did you, to get out of them so you didn't have to sit them, period, yeah. or, or did you it, sit them again later on? Le- later on, yeah. yeah my final, Once you've done your revision. I hadn't written my dissertation. I hadn't prepared for my exams and thought, oh, dear, I'm in all kinds of trouble here. And that was to get the Desmond. Um, Kat, how did you fake a heart well, problem? Well, I, I didn't. I have a heart problem. It was broken. <laughs> I have a heart problem. I embellished it. Uh, so I went to the local uh, general practitioner who said, get out of here, that's nonsense. And I thought, if I go to a private doctor, they'll write me a sick note. Really? Yeah. So and it worked? Did. It worked, yeah. Richard is complaining of heart palpitations. He needs rest. You give that to the academic department, there's nothing they can do. And you retired to your bedroom with your books? No, I went, uh, no, I went to COS for two weeks with the lads. <laughs> <laughs> and the heart was all right there, was it? It was fine. Yeah, Ticket held out there, did it? Not an issue. <laughs> yeah, not my finest hour. And do you know what I did? I could... Yeah, yeah. So we don't. Sorry, you know I'm doing my doctorate at the moment, and I did my first course like uh, two months ago at Harry at Watt University here. Uh, so I got my results back a couple of days ago, and they were they were good, but they're not amazing. I didn't cheat. Um, how, what did you, how did what did you get? I got sixty, which is scraping an A. You also hosted a bunch of panels and did a breakfast radio show whilst sitting an exam, like simultaneously. Oh yeah, it was a busy day. Um, it was just twenty four hours. Your open book exam, fine, whatever. Um, so I got, you know, good marks for the first three questions and then zero on the fourth question. So I wrote to them and said, was it really that bad? <laughs> you know, I mean, zero. And they said, you just didn't answer it. I just forgot to answer the question. Really? I'm 50 years old <laughs> and I forgot to answer a question. If one of my kids did that at school, they'd be grounded. <laughs> How do you forget to answer a question? Yeah, um... Well, you obviously had things in your mind, didn't you? I know. A little bit distracted. Some people are cheating using chat GPT. I'm just a bit mindless. You were, you, yeah, you were you were writing a script for a forthcoming radio show or something like that, something as opposed like to that. what the answer was coming. I forget what it was. Anyway, it's all good. Clearly. But, but I've never actually cheated. Have you, Brandy? Actually cheated. Tried to get an advantage, boost my mark by doing something nefarious. Not to a Tom level, no. I don't think I have. I was a horrible girly swat, though. Do you know what I mean? 
I mean, that hasn't worn off either. Yeah. Um, I was I was the Girl Scout. You've just completed an economics course at Oxford <laughs> University, haven't you? Where yeah, I also learned that you actually have to read the question and answer it. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You just you made your own question up. Yeah. Mine was better. <laughs> your question was better. <laughs> when you don't like the question, just make your own up. That's quite right. That's the way to do it. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. All right, then, let's continue our conversation about all things chat, GPT, and artificial intelligence. Right now, we're going to look at the angle of using it to cheat in school. Dr. Zinath Reza Khan is an assistant professor at the University of Wollongong here in Dubai within the Faculty of Engineering and Information Sciences. Joins us now in the studio. Uh, Dr. Zinath, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you've been doing a lot of research into cheating among university students for quite some time now, and you've had journal articles published on this subject. Obviously, ChatGPT takes cheating to another level. But before we get to ChatGPT, can we just take a step back? What has your research before ChatGPT, before AI, told you about the type of cheating that students are doing here in the UAE? So um, thank you so much, of course, for having me here. I mean, it's a it's a topic that's of great passion to me. Um, I think uh, whenever we have something like this happening um, around the world, we take this opportunity to actually take a step back, like you said, and actually talk about the greater picture, which is academic cheating or uh, misconducts. Um, I've been doing research on this topic for a while now in the region. And um, anybody who says cheating is not happening in their classrooms, um, that's a pipe dream. That doesn't happen, right? Um, there is always some form of cheating happening. Not all of it is intentional. Students aren't always doing it because they want to be malicious. Uh, a lot of the times they just don't have the right tools. They've not been taught the right type of writing skills that are needed, um, the right type of acknowledgments that's expected. Um, in the, especially during the pandemic, what we did see mushroom was SMLs. Um, which is basically companies that are writing assignments and reports for students. So you can basically hire, you've got an essay on, I don't know, 16th century history or whatever right. it may be, and you just hire a company to do it. Or in your field, computer <coughs> science, right. I've got a code, whatever it is, I can just hire a company and pay yeah. them a few hundred dollars and they'll do it for me. That's a big business, yeah. That's a huge business. Um, even businesses like um, sites that are offering answers to um, essays and questions, they became multi-billion dollar um, industries over the pandemic. Um, and um, this is something that everybody's kind of looking at. Uh, we've had quite a few countries actually banning such services, saying they're unethical and illegal now um, in countries like UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, parts of USA. Um, and the reason being, uh, contract cheating is a problem. It's not, not just an academic problem because you have a third party who is outside the jurisdiction of a university that actually is getting involved. So how do you kind of man or monitor or manage that aspect? And you set up something called the Centre for Academic Integrity right. to, to try and address this. Right. So how do you fix the problem? <laughs> so it's it's not something that you can just fix. It's, you can't put a Band-Aid on it. Um, it's something that you have to really work hard at. Um, the things that we do look at that works is not just at grassroots levels, just talking to students, because it's not just a student problem. Um, if I, as a teacher, am constantly repeating assignments, uh, my students are going to pick up on that and they're going to 
take the questions from somebody else and just repeat the answers. If my teacher can be lazy, so can I. So it's it's a systemic thing that we have to bring in where we are actually looking at building a culture of academic integrity. And in fact, what, that's what we've seen universities that have managed that kind of um, atmosphere succeed through the pandemic. Um, st- universities that didn't have like academic integrity as an agenda in their board meetings, they're the ones that were struggling. Um, universities that did, so they had that holistic approach already in place. They had the policies in place. They had instructors and faculty members who were aware of it. They had support systems for university students. Uh, teachers were not focusing on marks, but rather on the efforts. These are the institutions that really succeeded um, towards, uh, over the pandemic. So that's the kind of thing that you need to be doing. What percentage of students cheat? <laughs> so the percentage hasn't really changed much over the decades that we've done the research. It's about 70 to 80 percent. 70 um, to 80%. This is self-reported cases. That means if you do a survey or if you're doing focus group where students are by themselves reporting that, yes, I either I have cheated or I have seen somebody else cheat. So that's the range that we are looking at, usually 70 to 80. So that's significant. It is significant. But I, I guess it's just the, 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 like with everything, the cheating continues as the tools change. Yes. Yeah. Plagiarism used to be a thing. Copy paste. Now there yes. are tools for detecting plagiarism. <clears throat> but what to what extent is chat gpt a game changer in a cheating and b the the policing of cheating so such an interesting tool that has come out right and i think they were genius at putting this forward as a chat rather than just a site that you can go to and uh, and try and get text generated um so what is making it uh, a concern for most academics is the conversational side of it where you can just go and put in a question and then it will give you some kind of an answer um I know there have been sensational headlines about how schools are banning it and universities are saying, oh, we need to go back to pen and paper and that is the way forward. It cannot be the way forward because that's not progress. You're going backwards. It's just a tool. Uh, tool. So what we need to do is look at how do we incorporate this into our subjects? How do we incorporate this into our curricula? Um, redesign and rethink assessments so that you know we are not depending on just something that a student produces, rather as something the student is reflecting on, providing insights on. So it's, it's also about the assessment design, largely, um, that we need to be looking at. So yes, it's a concern. It's a concern because if a student is producing a um, piece of text from ChatGPT, it might be very difficult to distinguish between something a student has written and something a ChatGPT has written. But if I, as a lecturer, would know what kind of uh, output to expect from a student because I know what the process was, then I will immediately be able to distinguish. And instead of playing cat and mouse and being police with the students, if I can actually tell students, go ahead and use ChatGPT and then come back and reassess that work, reflect on it, review it, and then come back and give me a piece of work that you think is going to be answering my question. That's a more positive, more proactive way of looking at ChatGPT in classrooms. Great talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Although Thank you for having me. You've only got an 11-minute walk back to University of Wollongong, <laughs> so it's no great hardship at this time of year. Dr. Zenath Rezakar is a professor within the Faculty of Engineering and Information Sciences at the University of Wollongong, Dubai. Appreciate your time. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk aviation in particular, private aviation, because Vista Global Holdings, which owns the private jet company VistaJet, has reported a 55% increase in revenue for 2022. Joining us in the studio for the first time, I'm delighted to say, is the founder and chairman, Thomas Fleur. Thomas, good to have you with us. Thanks very much indeed. Good morning. Before we get on to this 50% increase, can you just give us the backstory to VistaJet? I know all about it, but a lot of people won't 
know the, the full story. You started it nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. How did it come to pass? Well, I was a frustrated user of the private jet industry, really. And uh, I, I couldn't get my head around it. I was chartering jets and you wouldn't get, you wouldn't know what you get until you arrived at the airport. And, uh, and that was a very frustrating experience. And I, I always kept asking, where's that global brand? You're selling to the wealthiest and most influential people in the world. And there was no global footprint of a brand like you have in many other luxury industries. And that kind of like led me to create VistaJet. Because you made your, your, your money, first of all, within the technology industry in simple That's terms, right. didn't you, with a company called Comdisco. You're Swiss, but this was in the United States in the mm -hmm. in 90s, early 2000s? That's correct. Yeah, I, I was president of uh, – I, I started Europe for them and then eventually became president of the business globally. It was a technology finance company. So my background is asset finance, which – Obviously helped me a lot um, creating VistaJet and, and the, the, the significant assets that Vista has today. But um, that was a good experience. We had a corporate jet. I was eventually, as a president, allowed to use the corporate jet. And I, I could see the business benefits, really the, the efficiency by using a business jet. I could be in three or four different cities uh, every day visiting clients, being batted at the headquarter. And it's just the, one of the most efficient business tools out there. So this started partly in the United States, partly mm -hmm. in Europe. Now you're based in Dubai. Mm -hmm. It's a DIFC-based organization. Mm -hmm. Why Dubai? It's a great place to do business. Um, I see that Dubai and the region here in the UAE as the center, really, of the world. If you look at the geographical distribution of the population, you can reach 5 billion people within a seven-hour flight. Uh, nowhere else do you have this uh, benefit of, of reachability. It's a very big growth region. Uh, we see the Middle East growing very strong, India, uh, Southeast Asia, and then obviously Europe. Um, the world has changed in the last 20 years, and this is the center of growth. Okay, so let's get on to those growth figures. 20% increase in revenue. You haven't published the, the dollar figure for your mm -hmm. revenue. You're a mm -hmm. private company. You don't have to. Mm -hmm. But Moody's, mm -hmm. thankfully, the ratings mm -hmm. agency, because you have rated debt, mm -hmm. have given us some figures. Mm -hmm. They put your revenue last year at around about $2.5 billion, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and your profit the year before mm -hmm. at around $340 million. Mm -hmm. How close to accurate are those figures? Well, I think they're more or less in the ballpark of being Moody's, Standard & Poor, and Fitch rating us uh, as a company. And uh, we have a very, very good start into 2023, so we see similar growth figures uh, continuing. There is a, a very, very strong shift of what we see in the industry on this A, uh, that within the private jet industry, there is a bigger trend towards asset light solutions. So think about it. Uh, why do you need to own as a corporation a $50 million jet if you can just buy a subscription by the hours you need? And you know, especially if you're a publicly traded company, um, you know, shareholders don't like to see a, a business jet on the balance sheet. And that's really what we created at Vista. And this is a, a operational uh, expense model. So an OPEX versus CAPEX and companies just buy the hours they need. And that's driving the growth. The most recent figure I saw for your fleet was 72 jets. What's the number at the moment? That, that, that's a, that's quite, a, quite a long time ago. Um, that was back in uh, 2018. Uh, we're today at 360 jets. 
and uh, <laughs> company has grown dramatically over the years. Uh, we did a couple of acquisitions. We continue to take delivery of brand new airplanes. And uh, that's the figure today. Uh, these jets are more or less equally distributed around the world. Um, about half of them in North America and half of them in the rest of the world. So if you're a client, uh, if you're in Tokyo, Manila, in the in the UAE or in in uh, in the United States, you just you're a click away on our app for booking a, a plane, and then you get a silver plane with a red stripe, which is our which is our brand. Yeah, two acquisitions recently. I think the mm-hmm. last time we spoke, you just bought. Air Hamburg out of Europe. There were mm-hmm. others as well. Mm-hmm. Why are these why these acquisitions rather than just buy more planes? Well, uh, what we saw is coming out of COVID. Uh, obviously, the supply chains were very much limited. Um, manufacturers were sold out, and we continue to have strong demand. And you see it in the revenue figures that we reported. And uh, we were forced with a decision: either we had to stop selling because we had no availability. Or we went out and, and bought two formidable companies, one being Air Hamburg, uh, was the number two in Europe and the Middle East, and Jettich in the United States. So as we go through this investment cycle, we invested over $2 billion last year uh, in our infrastructure. Uh, we are converting their airplanes into silver and red stripe airplanes, put our interior in it, brand new uh, cabin amenities, so that our clients having exactly the Vista jet experience, no matter whether they're on a jet edge, Air Hamburg or Vista airplane. Now, I don't know as much about private jets as I would mm-hmm. like to do, but with my limited knowledge, I kind of think of yourself and NetJets mm-hmm. as almost the Coke and Pepsi or Visa and MasterCard of, of this industry. Mm-hmm. That's an oversimplification. But mm-hmm. my, my question is, what, what is the point of differentiation mm-hmm. between you, VistaJet, mm-hmm. or a very high-profile organization like mm-hmm. NetJets? Well, I think you're spot on. I think um, uh, where we di- di- uh, differentiate is really in the business model. Um, you have the fractional industry where NetJets uh, is, is participating in. And in the fractional business model, um, in order to participate and be allowed to fly on their fleet, you really need to buy a fraction of an airplane. And we oppose this idea. We believe you should be asset light. Uh, until today, nobody can really show me what a quarter of an airplane is. So uh, in order to fly 200 hours per year, you need to buy a quarter of an airplane. That asset really doesn't exist. It's a legal model. It's complicated. And it has the asset risk. Asset risk means you're exposed to the market value of this asset. And if you want to sell it, you can only sell it back to the company you bought it from. That's a captive market. With us, you just buy the hours you need. You consume the hours, and if you need more hours, you buy more hours. Much more simple. From a global distribution point of view, the fractional industry is very much focused on North America. That's where they started. Most of their fleet is in North America. We believe this is a global industry. We are here with our headquarters in the UAE. Um, you know, if, if any industry is a global industry, it's, it's uh, aviation. And, uh, and that's really our focus. I would say, lastly, that uh, we believe that this is a very much a luxury uh, product where uh, the cabin experience counts uh, as one of the key features. And uh, we believe that we're number one in that as well. Rohit's written in, final question, what about sustainability? I know you've got targets. Mm-hmm. What can you say to Rohit? Uh, look, we, we take this extremely serious. We announced in 2021 that we want to be carbon neutral by 2025. Um, it's really a combination 
combination between carbon offset and now getting our hands on as much SAF, you know, sustainable fuel, uh, as we can. We just added another airport, Vienna, in Austria. Um, we bought significant sustainable fuel. Uh, wherever that becomes available, that's still very much supply constrained. Uh, Vista is out there and, and buys it outright. Uh, we have a great uptake of our client base. It's a membership business model. Um, now close to 90% of our clients are financially participating in that. Uh, last 12, uh, 18 months, we took delivery of 18 Global 7500 airplanes, the first environmentally certified airplane uh, contributing to, to this massive effort that we're undertaking. Uh, we believe AI plays a major role in this. 10 uh, seconds left, Thomas. Sure. Finish your thoughts. Uh, sustainability is key to us. We're taking it very serious and we're investing wherever we can uh, to help the cause, which is a bigger cause for the world. Thomas Floor, great talk. Could you appreciate your time? The founder of VistaJet, appreciate you joining us in the studio this morning. 50% increase in revenue last year. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. And those bumper jobs numbers might seem a little bit uh, of an anomaly given the tech layoffs that we have been talking about um, in some of the world's largest blue chip tech companies over the last few weeks. But it does seem that the tech industry is a law unto itself. And one woman who knows that law exceptionally well, particularly when it comes to staffing, is Anne Hyatt. Now, she was a guest at the Literature Festival over the weekend. Um, she's a leadership consultant. She's an author. Um, and she's also the former right-hand woman and executive business partner to both Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Eric Schmidt of Google, where she was, indeed, Google's first chief of staff. She's also author of the business self-help book, Bet on Yourself, which is, of course, Richard's favourite genre. Uh, and good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brandy. Thanks for having me. Before we dig into your career, let's look at those Silicon Valley changes, massive numbers being announced, yeah. um, and some criticism about the layoffs have been handled. What do you make of, of what Silicon Valley is doing at the moment, letting go of tens of thousands of people? I think this is a, a pattern we've seen before. This happened after the dot-com bust in the early 2000s, and then we also had a less significant, but still some across-the-board layoffs that happened in the 2008 financial crisis. So this is a pattern we've seen before, and this is an opportunity for these companies to really consolidate and become more efficient because all organizations over time get a little bloated. I do think there is some worthy criticism of the way that some of the companies have handled the layoffs. Um, some have handled it better than others. What does it say about rapid hiring and and then firing, scaling up quickly to deal with something like a COVID pandemic. Um, and then when when tides turn, letting people go, does there need to be more balanced sort of approach to hiring in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think you're exactly right that we this is an effect of rapid hiring. There was an incredible boom that happened during the pandemic where Everyone was at home, so everyone was online, and they had a great demand for employees who were able to handle that huge influx. But now, unfortunately, the economy has turned. But honestly, I think this is just an excuse to do some trimming that, um, well, everyone can just be absorbed into a single headline rather than being criticized and affect your direct stock price. So I think there's a little bit of taking advantage of, of the trend going on as well. One of the companies that has come in for particular criticism for the way that it's let people know about layoffs is Google, where you were formerly mm -hmm. chief of staff. Is there a right way to lay off 12,000 people? A hundred percent. Now, all of my friends who have um, been swept up in the 
in the layoffs, especially at Google, have been treated very humanely. Of my direct contacts, I haven't heard of anyone being, you know, shut out of their account without notice. In, in my experience, that hasn't been true. However, there's a very well-written headline uh, by Stephen Levy uh, in Wired, where he's the headline was uh, how ungoogly it was that the way that they handled the layoffs. So, and, and he wrote a very fair critique. And I think this is really an indication of some shifts in management priorities. Sundar Pichai is a, a great CEO and someone I know personally and trust really well. There's also a very, very difficult environment. So yeah, some difficult decisions are having to be made. Does Silicon Valley and Seattle, of course, because <laughs> we've got two tech hubs yes. in the US, um, need to think about how it thinks about its staffing resources. I mean, you know, some of the big headlines we've seen coming out over the last few weeks have been about things like the perks, the the, the massages, the on-site laundries, etc., um, being scaled back. And there's long been criticism that those perks weren't actually designed to help staff, but to help them stay at work for longer. Because if you can do everything on campus, you never have to go home. I can attest after working in tech for 15 years that, yes, there was no reason to leave headquarters. I, you know, could very comfortably live there for 18 hours a day. And, yeah, it was designed to create a community space where there was no need to go off campus. And we were really able to collaborate not only in the conference room, but also over, you know, lunch at the cafe or grabbing a coffee in what we call micro kitchens. And um, there was it's definitely a reasonable business expense um, because it really was very functional when you're trying to create community, creativity, and innovative environments. It really does lend to that. I know it sounds quite extravagant, but in reality, it, it functioned very, very effectively. I'm very curious what Silicon Valley will look like on the other side of this economic crisis because I think these changes in the way that they're treating employees will have an effect on that creativity and innovation. And let's just give people a, a, an idea of sort of how much of an insider you are, how much you, you know this culture. Mm. Serving right next to, reporting directly to Jeff Bezos and, and Eric Schmidt, who at the time was CEO and chairman of Google. Mm -hmm. Tell us about getting hired by Bezos. I understand <laughs> that the interview was memorable. It was definitely memorable. Uh, it took me nine months to get that job. It was my first job after undergrad. Uh, I went through three rounds of interviews, but the final interview was with him and him only. And he only asked me two questions, which is usually the headline and people forget about the 20 interviews that happened before that. But yes, uh, he asked me first a brain teaser. He asked me to estimate the number of panes of glass in the city of Seattle. And the second was really about my passion alignment with him. He asked how working at Amazon was in line with what I was trying to accomplish long term in my career. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in that interview technique. He kind of stress tested me to see if I could break down a complicated problem into manageable steps, if he could fluster me, which thankfully he didn't. And then to see if we were aligned in what mattered to us most and if he could imagine us sitting together, which we did for three years. Uh, I had the desk physically closest to him in the entire organization and we worked side by side for 18 hour days. So you worked through how many windows there might be in Seattle? Literally. His personal conference room that I was in, uh, three of the four walls were floor to ceiling whiteboards. And we filled all three of those whiteboards doing the math until we literally got to a single answer. He circled it, capped the pen and said, I think that's about right. And I nearly passed out. I was so relieved <laughs> that that question was finished. But that really proved to him that, that I could handle it and that I could collaborate with him on a complex problem. I think that's really what he was looking for with that question.
And then you thought you killed him. I did. (laughs) So the opening line of my book, Bet on Yourself, is a memorable one. And it says, in 2003, I nearly killed Jeff Bezos. And the story is a a bit longer than we probably have time for, but it's true. In, In 2003, he nearly died in a helicopter crash of a helicopter that I had hired for him. And I was very concerned that I had might have killed Jeff Bezos and it would have killed the entire organization at the time because back then Amazon was not yet profitable and all of our shareholder value was based in faith in Jeff Bezos himself, who thankfully we all know how that story did not end in his death nor the end of my career. (laughs) We've got one minute left with you. Um, How do the lessons that you've learned in Silicon Valley feature in what you're now teaching other CEOs and indeed any of us through, through your book? Yeah, my challenge in writing my book, Bet on Yourself, was to distill the universal truths that I've learned from these seemingly super performers and translate them for into best practices for us normal people. For those of us who have goals and ambitions that maybe scare us a little bit to say out loud, I've really tried to create a playbook for making those biggest dreams come true. The first of which is really just getting brave enough to acknowledge to yourself that you are made for more and that you have dreams that are bigger than maybe anyone around you, anyone who looks like you has done before, and to really get brave enough to show up in that way. And I really want to democratize success. And Hyatt is a leadership consultant, former Google chief of staff and right-hand woman to Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Brandy. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.